Hey guys, welcome to episode two of The Kingdom and the Power, a podcast dedicated to helping listeners reimagine the world, life, and faith from a distinctly Christian perspective. I'm your host, Josh Robinson, and on today's episode, I'm joined by my guest, Lucas Dormany. Lucas is the minister at Trinity Reformed Church in Martinsburg, West Virginia. And in today's episode, he and I discussed what it looks like to reimagine and to remythologize the liturgy and really all of life and the world from a distinctly Christian perspective. I felt like that today's episode was a great episode. I feel like that we had a great conversation, and I'm really looking forward to you guys hearing it today. And so with that said, we'll see you guys on the other side. Joining me today is my guest, Lucas. Go ahead and introduce yourself for listeners and tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I'm Lucas Dormany. I'm a pastor at uh, Trinity Reformed Church in Martinsburg, West Virginia, in the panhandle here. Um, been married to my beautiful wife for 10 years, coming up in June 29th, and father three boys, Ezra, Anselm, and Amos. And uh, yeah, so I recently ordained and a uh, new church plan up here in Martinsburg, and things are going great. Thanks for that, Lucas. Lucas and I met a couple years ago. They do, uh, they do uh, a forum, a men's theology forum up in the Panhandle, and they graciously invited me to come up and speak a couple years ago. And if I recall, Lucas, you and I talked to like two or three in the morning when we first met. Yeah. Yeah. I think Peter was ready for us to go. Yeah. Peter, Peter was ready to kick us out of his house. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, so today I want to frame our conversation by just making a few preliminary remarks. And that's, that's basically this. We currently live in what has been referred to as a secular age, uh, and a simplistic way of explaining what that means is that we live in a world that has been stripped of much of its sacredness, uh, its supernaturalism, and as a consequence, viewing the world as cold, sterile, and often scientifically is the assumed default for many of us. And unfortunately, this is also true in some ways for the church, uh, especially in evangelicalism. uh, For many, things such as buildings and sanctuaries um, have had all of the sacredness stripped away from them, right? If you go check that, most buildings out there, industrial like warehouses, there's, you know, no sacredness, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, Most typically also don't view their services as something sacred, mysterious, or participatory in heavenly mysteries. Uh, Rather, the norm is more like a concert or a TED Talk where religious goods and services are dispensed. So now I don't want to come to seem like I'm coming down on evangelicals too much. That's our own camp in ways, right? Like that's my, certainly, mm-hmm. you know, my camp. But personally, whenever I look at this way of doing things, I think that it it's playing right in the hands of a secular narrative in ways, right? That the world is cold, that it's sterile and it's, it's, you know, it is the things that it is. There's no supernatural, um, that kind of thing. And so I'm convinced that one of the ways of pushing back against the cold, sterile, scientific, uh, secularism of our day is by reimagining and recovering the liturgy. So with that in mind, I want to start us off with this question. For listeners who may not be familiar, what is the liturgy? And would you agree with that assessment of things? Like what are some of the elements that make up the liturgy? And what do you think has led to the secularization of the church, and do you think that recovering these ancient rhythms are a way to 
intentionally push back? Sure, that, that's a big question. Um, the liturgy, uh, as you're probably aware of, comes from the, the Latin uh, word and also originally the Greek word, um, or a couple words. Uh, but basically, it means people's service or the work of the people. Uh, I prefer the the people's service aspect of it because I think it's a, a play on words a bit. Yeah. Um, it's liturgy is the the symbols gathered body of Christ doing something together, but it's also God doing something to His people. It's God serving His people as well. Um, so the liturgy, there's many aspects down throughout history that constitute the liturgy of the church, and there's many different, um, I, I guess, variations of that that liturgy throughout history. But I think some of the big parts of the liturgy is a call to worship, a call to come into God's presence. Um, then you have a confession of sin or fault, um, followed by some sort of absolution, some sort of acknowledgement that God forgives you of your sins. And then you have songs and 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 the word. Uh, um, preached and recited, um, and then you have some form of sacrament, the Lord's Supper, um, usually at this point of the service, and then some sort of commissioning or going out into the world uh, to accomplish God's work uh, in, in the world around you. So you have that kind of uh, formulation, and, and there have been many v- different variations of that um, throughout history, but those are the main elements of the liturgy, and I do think that the secularization of um, of the liturgy of the church has been a uh, a big problem, especially in in the West, yeah. um, where we have this idea that it's really just about coming together, hearing, singing some songs together, because that unifies us, and then hearing a good talk on some sort of passage, so that I understand in my head um, who Jesus is and what He did for me, and then I go home and I do my secular thing. Yeah. Um, but I think that's a big mistake. Yeah. I think that you're right, and um, I think that it it ultimately causes a lot of a lot of issues. Um, we we tend to, from that point, look at the the Sunday gathering as something that is um, it's a, it's, a, it's a place where we come to consume religious goods and services, right? Where we come to hear mm-hmm. a talk that motivates us to go back out into the week. And I'm, I'm not saying that there isn't some aspect to that that is is true in some sense. I mean, mm-hmm. you do have the commissioning where you go back out into the world. The the layout that you gave of the liturgy is the exact liturgy that we try to have tried to implement into our church. Um, but so there is an aspect of that is true. But I suspect that what it does is it 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 makes us not the liturgy, but the way that things are done in modernity is that. Um, or post-modernity, I guess, is, is what we would call it now, but um, uh, th- is that it, it creates uh, religious consumers. And I think that that's really problematic, right? Like there's no participation mm-hmm. anymore. And like even in, you know, classical rhythms of, um, for example, you know, in the call to worship, you know, the minister may, uh, you know, say something and then the congregation may respond right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's participatory. Um, we, we've almost lost that entirely, you know what I mean? And so I think that that's problematic. And I think that it causes some major issues on down the line, right? Like we wonder why people don't say plug into the life of the church, like things other than Sunday gatherings. Well, I think one of the answers is, is that 
we're not actually participating in things, right? We're just coming and we're consuming. So, so I, so, um, I, you can go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say that add a little bit to that. Um, yeah. the participatory, participatory nature of the service, um, you mentioned call and response and, and, and that sort of aspect of the liturgy. What that does is it, it reminds people that it's not just about your own individual experience. Yeah. Um, that the liturgy of the church is about the gathered assembly. So when you go to a, um, you know, a modern, uh, and I hate to, again, I, I hate to pick on evangelicals, but we, yeah. we kind of, we've, we've done a disservice in this area where you go into a service and, you know, you've got the, the countdown on the screen ready for the experience to start. Yeah. And then you've got the lights that are dimmed, which yeah. makes you feel isolated and alone. And then, Yep. Um, and then one guy talks and and you know starts the service off with loud music where you can't hear each other sing um, next to each other and that creates an environment of individualism um, that I think is just prevalent throughout our culture but I think it's really creeped into the church because you can't um, you can't really discern the body of Christ yeah. if you can't hear or see your neighbor. Um, or if everything is focused on your individual experience. So I do think that's a, a growing problem in the Western church. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And honestly, uh, if I'm being honest, whenever we first planted our church, that was kind of what we were doing as well. You know, that was what kind of like what, what I knew. Um, that was, um, you know, what other people who had been inv involved in church plants, that's what they knew as well. But we become convinced just after, you know, a, a, a season of just reevaluating things and prayer that ultimately this wasn't, we didn't think that it was healthy. Um, we, we thought that it was um, creating a culture of individualism. I mean, we did the whole dim the lights thing and, you know, and, you know, and I found that after we kind of done away with that, when we would like, it was actually our, uh, our worship leader, who brought it to my attention. He was like, you know, man, he's like, I don't know if this really talk like truly communicates who we are. Like we are the body mm. of Christ. We need to see one another. We need to be able to, to, to sing together. You know, he brought all these things to my attention. So, you know, I was like, man, that's, you know, that's good. You're right. And so we, <laughs> we, we, re we rethought that. And so I'm, I'm thankful for that. Praise God. Yeah. So I suspect that some may hear us say these things and they may say, well, well, wait a minute. Right. Isn't the, the, the liturgy, isn't that a Roman Catholic Eastern Orthodox thing, right? Now, what would you say to someone who would say that? What, what would you do to comfort them? Uh, that, that's a, that's a great question. I, I have heard that before. Yeah. Um, you know, this seems really high church, very um, legalistic or, or all about ritual. Um, yeah. And to, to those people, I usually say, well, you know, all, all, all throughout history, we've seen these aspects of, of worship being portrayed in some sort of way. And we do the things we do because the Bible says it, not because, um, because our Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox brothers tend to lean in that sort of direction. And, and I would actually argue that they, um, they don't have that corporate nature that I think Protestants do have in the liturgy of the church. Um, you don't you don't attend, say, Trinity or, or New Haven and and think, 
well, they just did something in front of me and I just witnessed something happen, but I wasn't really participating. Right. Um, that's, that's not really what worship is about. And so um, I would point them to the Reformation. I would point them to Martin Luther and, and, all, and, and John Calvin and all those who argued for a, uh, a, a call and response of Christ's bride to her husband. And that's the kind of formation that the liturgy takes. Um, in, in a Protestant context. So it's not inherently Catholic or inherently Orthodox or, or whatever. It's, I think, inherently Christian. And we see echoes of that in the Roman and Eastern traditions um, as well. It's just a part of what it means to worship Jesus as the church. Yeah. Uh, and so I would, I would even go further than that. I think that you're absolutely right. I'm actually looking right now at the liturgy that John Calvin had in uh, Geneva. I'm looking at a resource called uh, Reformation Worship, Liturgies from the Past and from the Present, and it has a uh, a lot of those uh, ancient liturgies that are in here, and man, I'm looking at it, and you know, Calvin, Calvin started his services off with a call to worship and confession, prayer of forgiveness, words of comfort, absolution, reading of the Decalogue. He had all those things mm-hmm. in his liturgy, but I would go even further than that, and I would say that really liturgy is, is inescapable. Um, right, that every church has a liturgy. So, for example, uh, you know, a little bit from my background, I come from a very low church tradition. Um, I was originally a free will Baptist um, whenever I became a Christian. Um, my wife, uh, whenever I met her, um, she was attending a free will Baptist church, and I was just a new Christian at that time. And um, she had been a free will Baptist her entire life. And um, so I started attending the church that she attended because I didn't have a home church. And we spent, oh, we probably spent half a decade there together or so. Um, mm-hmm. And during that entire period while I was there, I you know, in, was introduced to Reformed theology and all that, that kind of stuff. But anyway, um, a pretty low church tradition, and, but they still had a liturgy that was discernible. You know, even though if I would have said, hey, we need to think about this liturgy. They would have been like, Oh, well, we don't have a liturgy, right? We do things by the spirit here. You know what I mean? But every week the service would start off the same way. Somebody would come up, they would make announcements and check this out. They would, they would, one of the deacons would bring up a old wooden church to start the service and they would do birthdays and anniversaries. (laughs) They would celebrate (laughs) birthdays and anniversaries and you would go, if it was your birthday or if it was your anniversary, you would go and you would drop a coin into the wooden church and you would get a pencil <laughs> Oh, nice! <laughs> or an eraser. And so now they would have said, no, this is the spirit leading us to do this thing. But mm-hmm. it was a, a weekly ritual. You know what I mean? It was, it was a part of the liturgy. And so that's what I, so what I'm saying is that liturgy is inescapable. We all have liturgies. Um, and so since that's true, we should all consciously be thinking about that, right? Like, who are we glorifying with doing this? Who are we pointing to with this thing that we're doing, right? I think that with the, the birthday and the anniversary thing, you're, you're pointing towards the person who's celebrating, right? And so we mm-hmm. should constantly consciously think about that because in our Sunday liturgy, we should be pointing to Christ. We should be glorifying him. And so you, you got any yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And the, and the point about being spirit-led, I think, is another it is. Uh, interesting thing, because that 
that's what the liturgy is. It's being led by the Spirit of God and into the presence of God. And um, it, and what better way or what what better um, authority for that uh, practice than going to the Spirit inspired Word of God? Yeah. And when you do that, then you start to see how God wants you uh, to enter into His presence. He doesn't want you to do it haphazardly. Um, he doesn't want you to make it up as you go. He's actually helped you to figure out how you are supposed to interact with him, how you're supposed to receive his blessings, how you're supposed to receive his word. And uh, yeah, so every church does have a liturgy. Um, I, I, I do think you, you're onto something when, when you say, well, um, when you actually attack it and say, why is it? why is it you do it this way or why do you do this instead of this or and i think a lot of churches in my experience didn't have those answers yeah. um they couldn't tell me why they did things the way they did them um this is just the way we've always done them or um well there's nothing in the bible that says that you have to do it a certain way um so it's usually usually that reasoning and i, I think that that's a disservice to uh the worship of god's people yeah Whenever we, we started rethinking this, the very first thing that we did was we put our liturgy down on paper and we sat down together and we said, now, why are we doing this? Like, what, what, where is this in scripture? Who, what is this pointing to? Um, you know, so we, that's the very first thing that we did. We put all of that down and rethought all of that. Um, mm. And so and I would maybe even drive this a little bit further. Um, so for, for example, uh, we talked about it there, um, from, a, an ecclesiastical, um, ecclesiological level that everyone has a liturgy, but perhaps, um, even from an anthropological level, um, James K. A. Smith, um, he's written quite a, quite a bit. He has a quote that says that humans are homo liturgicus or in other words, liturgical creatures. And so, he talks about that, um, you know, that, that we, we can't even escape it in our own lives, right? The, our, our lives are liturgical. And so uh, I think that that's true whenever you dig down deep. I mean, think about it. Every day you have the same rhythm, right? You get up, you take a shower, right? You, you get up, you go to work or you eat, you eat breakfast, you go to work, you go to work, you've, you've got a task to do, you do the task, you come home you eat again with your family, you wind down or you take a shower, you go to bed. Like life is chiastically structured mm -hmm. and it's, it's, uh, it's liturgical. And, you know, even, I think even deeper again, at an ontological level, like all of creation, um, is liturgical in ways. I mean, it has discernible seasons, right? Like spring, summer, fall, winter, every year, this season is repeated. Uh, life springs up and it resurrects from the dead. It glory, it, it, it points to the heavens. Uh, it's glorified and then it dies. And then it, this, you just have this pattern that goes on and on and on. And so, uh, yeah, I think that that just really drives home this point that liturgy is inescapable. It's, it's every church has a liturgy. Um, it's written in who we are as a people. We can't escape it as much as we'd want to. And even at an ontological level in all of creation, all of creation is liturgical as well. So whenever you try to be anti-liturgical, I think, I think that you're actually going against the grain of creation. 
Yeah, I, I, I think that's a really good point. And I hate to get all Jonathan Edwardsy here, but um, when, when, when you look at creation and um, there's a prayer that we, uh, that we pray, and I'm, I'm just going to summarize it here for our evening prayers um, as a family. And um, one of it is bring us safely to the morning hours. Um, and then it, then it talks about Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection. Um, and when we look at life like that, um, look at life like um, that it is this divine liturgy that we're a part of, where uh, when we go to sleep, we're sleeping like Adam in the garden, and he, we resurrect uh, to this new world uh, when we wake up, or um, when my kids um, when my kids wake up, they can't avoid their own liturgy, right? They've got to They've got to run downstairs, make sure they beat us down downstairs uh, into the living room, open up all their toys, start playing, right? Then it's, okay, we got to pray and get started with schoolwork. And so we have this movement as a family um, that's generally the same. Um, and then you talked about creation. I mean, every day um, the sun goes down, there's darkness. Then the, the world wakes up with the sun rising. Um, so you have this liturgy that's all throughout creation. You see it in the animals. You see it in, uh, in everything around us. And if you were to really look at it, uh, I think that it really models what Christ has done for us. Uh, you look at creation and, and the sun going down, right? Yeah. Death and resurrection. You see um, the, the seasons pass, right? The, the winter comes. Everything dies. Uh, everything's covered with white snow then resurrection happens in the springtime. Um, and if you look at it that way, and, and you realize that liturgy is everywhere, and that liturgy reflects the life of Jesus, then how much more should our worship reflect that life of Jesus? And I think that that's really what worship is, is that reflection of our Lord Jesus Christ and his life given for us, and us participating in that life. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I think that that's, I think that's fantastic. And I think that, man, imagine that's not the way that we view the world. Is it like, if we're being honest, like most of us don't view the world the way that you and I just discussed, like that it is this thing that is pointing to Christ and that it's, it's proclaiming his work, mm. um, even in creation. I, I think that that is such an apologetic, um, against, modernity or modernity where we're at and in secular uh, secularism, right? Like that, that's not the way that we view the world. We've been, we've come to be trained to view the world scientifically, right? It, it's composed of all these little atoms and all these atoms are doing things. And we've got this ball of gas in the sky, the sun, right? And it's, it's, uh, it's heating the planet and you know, that kind of thing. That's the way that we've been trained to view the world. And I think from a biblical perspective, that's not necessary. I mean, it's not saying that those things aren't true, but that's not primarily right. the way that the Bible views the world. It, it views it, it, it liturgically, uh, you know, almost like I, I want to read us a passage of scripture. Um, yeah. Last year I did a talk on liturgy um, in a conference for Acts 29 network. And this was one of the passages that I read to make the point to the, uh, to my listeners that, um, creation is liturgical um, and that it is pointing to Christ and it is proclaiming a message. This comes from Psalm 19. 
So this is a Psalm of David, and it says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour out speech. Night after night, they communicate knowledge. There is no speech. There are no words. Their voice is not heard, but their message has gone out to the whole earth and their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, he has pinched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out from his home. It rejoices like an athlete running a course. It rises from one end of the heavens and circles to the other end. Nothing is hidden from its heat. So David views the world much differently than we do, right? He, he sees that he looks up into the heavens and he sees that it is declaring, even though it's not speaking, right? It, it doesn't speak words like you and I, but he looks at it and he seems that it is pouring out speech, that it is declaring the handiworks of God and that this message has gone out to the ends of the world. And not only that, but he uses like Christological language here about the son mm. and the, the bridegroom. Like this is language that's used of Christ and, in other places. And he says that it's the son is like a bridegroom coming out from his home and it's rejoicing like an athlete running its course. And so, uh, and it rises from one end of the heavens and goes out, you know, circles around to the other end. So I, I think that David viewed this, the, the world, the way that we're talking about. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And, and maybe uh, one of the reasons why we don't view it the way David does, is because we don't sing his psalms mm. and we don't saturate our life with that sort of imagery, uh, taking a full circle back to the worship of the church. But, yeah. um, but you see that in Revelation, too. I mean, uh, John uses uh, creational imagery to point to eschatological truths. Yeah. And that's how we should see the world around us. We should have that sort of mysterious mythological view of the world because it's true not because we're making something up in our head or we just want to think about god but that there really is um the heavens there really is the glory of god uh around us and we have to we have to view the world that way we're we're going to be um malnourished when it comes to the worship of the church because we're not going to believe the things that the bible says we should believe yeah yeah, I think that you're, man, that is, that is a fantastic point. And, and I think that your point about the Psalms, not singing the Psalms, like that gets back to the, the liturgy, right? The, the liturgy is a God-given thing uh, that he is, it's, it's something that he has given to us by the Spirit to help us think about the world and to think about it rightly. Mm-hmm. And it gives us the language, it gives us the categories um, to do so. And it helps us to, like you said, re-mythologize the, the world. Um, and we don't mean that if listeners are listening in, we don't mean that as that we view the world as a myth. It's something that's not true, like you said, but we're, we're viewing it as a, right. a God given, uh, the way that God has created it. Uh, it gives it meaning, it gives it purpose. Um, and it gives us a way of, of viewing it that way. And so that's what we mean by, uh, kind of re-mythologizing creation. So, yeah, when you look at it scientifically, um, you you start to view uh, the world as a how, how everything works. Yeah. But scripture te- scripture shows us why they work that way, yeah. not how. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. And uh, you know, we've we've even I've had conversations here recently um, with folks about um, the way that the cosmology 
uh, I know this is getting a little bit off of off topic, but you know, that's fine. We can do that. Um, but I've been talking to people about cosmology um, and the way that the Bible views the world. It's like this three decker uh, world, right? You've got the heavens above the expanse. Um, the expanse shows us kind of what the highest heavens like it's, uh, you know, I've heard James B. Jordan talk about the expanse and the blueness of it. Uh, perhaps mm. corresponding to the great sea uh, before the throne. Right. And so whenever, every time you, whenever you, you get that, you look at it and you, you immediately think of heaven. Um, and then you've got the earth below. Uh, and then after that, you've got the waters below, uh, you know, below, you know what I mean? And that place corresponds, I guess, with Sheol and, you know, Hades and, and all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, scientifically, somebody would look at that and they would be like, oh, you know, no, that's not the way that, the, you know, things are. But the Bible isn't concerned with telling us, um, you know, it's not it's not concerned with giving us a scientific view of the world. Right. Like mm -hmm. it's not concerned with that. It's giving us a, a symbolic way to view the world, a. Um, and, and I think that in it, it's actually, it's what we experience, um, right? Like you look, it's, it, if, if I were standing here, if I were to go out in my yard, it doesn't appear to me that I'm on a globe spinning very quickly <laughs> going through space. Right. You know what I mean? Like it's talking, I think experientially, it's, it's talking about what we experience and it's very practical. Um, like I go outside and I see exactly what Genesis tells me. I see the heavens above. Uh, I'm standing on the earth below and I'm look, I turn around and I look and I see the Creek that is running underneath, you know, where I'm standing, you know what I mean? And so mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's how the world appears to us. I don't think those two things are necessarily in conflict. Um, but I, I think that whenever you recover this way of viewing the world, it's, uh, you're definitely under you're you're definitely able to understand the scriptures better, and it gives you a um a way of viewing the world that becomes very meaningful, and it gives meaning to everything because those things get picked up later on in scripture. This kind mm -hmm. of symbolic, mythological worldview, right? And so, for example, the waters are associated with Hades, right? Hades is a or Sheol. Sheol's kind of a place. It's the underworld, right? It's it's you, you think of the underworld and you think chaos, you think that type of thing. Right. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that language gets applied symbolically to nations later on, right? Like the Philistines, they're going to flood into the land. That's like water language, right? They're going to flood into mm -hmm. the land and they're going to cause chaos or Babylon is going to flood into the land and they're going to overtake the world like a flood, that kind mm -hmm. of kind of thing. Uh, and you even see it too with like, say, uh, you know, the scriptures where it talks about like uh, Leviathan in the waters, right? Like it's the, it's looking at the way the world uh, that the Bible looks at it. And it's, it's kind of taking that cosmological structure and making an entire symbolic worldview of it. And I, if you don't get that, you're not going to be able to understand what the Bible is actually talking about. Right. I think that's a good point too. And, and, and I hate to, I guess veer even more off topic, but oh, just fine. briefly, um, it, I think it's a really loving way in which God shows us the world. Um, he shows it to us incarnationally. He says, um, no, I'm going to look at it through your eyes and I'm going to show you why, like how I created this world and I created it for your, for your good, for, for your 
your purpose to glorify God in it and to expand his kingdom, to, um, to cultivate the earth and make it into this heavenly city, this new garden city, uh, New Jerusalem. So there's this, there's this uh, loving nature in, in the way that God speaks to us. And I think it, it's, um, it's not hospitable of us to deny that vision that God clearly gives us in the scriptures. Yeah. Yeah. You're 100% right. That's uh, I think that that's really, really helpful. So I want to get us back on track with this question. <laughs> and that, that question is this, this is exactly what I knew would happen whenever I got us together. I knew that you and I would just go down uh, rabbit, rabbit holes. And that's exactly what I wanted. Um, I think that that's, I think that that's fun for listeners and, I never, uh, I never planned on us talking about an entire re-mythologized wor- way of viewing the world. But that, right, yeah. that's exactly the type of thing that I want to discuss here. So I'm glad that, <laughs> I'm glad that we're doing that. So uh, but this next question, I think, will get us back on track. And that's this. What is it exactly that happens in the liturgy? Right? We've, we've talked about uh, you know, kind of a, this cosmic liturgy. But what is it that happens in our liturgy in the local church, right? Is the liturgy just some dead ritual and, and rites that happen, mm-hmm. or is there something more going on behind the scenes? Yeah. Well, how much time do you have? Um, <laughs> as much as you want, brother. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think uh, going back to a previous answer, I think um, what happens in the liturgy, liturgy is we participate in the, I guess, the divine drama of Jesus's life. Um, and what that means, you have to, to understand what that means, you have to go back to the worship of the old covenant. Um, those types and shadows are there for us to see uh, how the new, new covenant uncovers those, how, how Jesus' life uh, unveils the mysteries found in those types and shadows. So if you look at uh, Leviticus chapter 1, um, all the way to like Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement, um, you see a structure of a uh, a way in which we're we're supposed to approach God. So Moses is instructed to call Israel in. Um, so that's the call to worship. Call them call them to the tent of meeting. And then you have like these multiple sacrifices that we we tend to uh, lump in with a bunch of law in the old covenant. We we tend to throw those on the shelf and not think about them. But you have three main sacrifices. You have others as well. But you have three main sacrifices in the Le- Levitical system. And that was the sin offering, uh, which was an offering offered up for the sins of, of you and your family. Um, and you had the uh, whole burnt offering, which is uh, probably better translated as the ascension offering. Um, and then, uh, then you have the, uh, the peace offering, um, which was uh, unique as well. So you have these three main sacrifices of the Levitical system. And basically, those sacrifices were to show us what we deserve and how we are to enter into God's presence. So, for example, um, when you were to bring a goat or, 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 or a sheep or something to the, the tent of meeting, um, the worshiper would place their hand on the head of the animal. And that would to symbolize that the worshiper deserves what this animal is about to receive, which is death. Um, the animal's killed. And then um, in the sin offering, that, that it, uh, animal was offered up to God alone. Um, and then you see in the uh, ascension offering that uh, the same 
pattern is approached for the worshiper, but the priest partakes of the offering with God, eats of the offering with God. And the smoke of the burnt offering is really the, the climax of that particular offering, what you're supposed to think of when you think of that offering. And then the peace offering is the worshiper would sit down and eat with the priest and God of this meal. And so I think you have to start with the Levitical system, understand why that was in place. We move to Leviticus 16, sorry, with the Day of Atonement, and you see the great high priest going into the most holy place of God in the tabernacle, Tent of Meeting, and uh, putting blood on the altar in the most holy place on behalf of Israel. And that's really what Jesus does when, when he offers up his life. He enters into the most holy place on our behalf, and in him— we receive the blessings of that sacrifice, the forgiveness of sins, um, and the resurrection of the body. And so, um, really, the liturgy, and you see this in Hebrews, is a glorification, a uh, fulfillment of that Levitical system. God didn't do away with how we're supposed to approach God. He just fulfilled it in himself. So, um, when we look at the liturgy, we, we see those same aspects. We need a sacrifice for sin. That's the confession. We need um, to ascend up into the heavenly places to be with God. That's the whole burnt offering. That's the preaching of the word, the singing of God's people. Uh, Revelation talks about singing being incense offered up to God, prayer offered up to God. Um, Then you see the peace offering, which is ultimately fulfilled in Christ's sacrifice for us and his body broken, his blood shed for us, and we take and eat of that peace offering with God at his table in the heavenly places. So um, it's really just a participation in the divine life of Jesus as the corporate body of Christ. That is a fantastic answer, Lucas. That was uh, a, <laughs> that was, that was a beautiful answer. And I think that that's really going to resonate with listeners, listeners. I think that probably most people who are listening to this, which is mostly folks at my local church. <laughs> most, of them, most of them have probably not associated uh, the liturgical aspects that we're doing in the local church with their Old Testament counterparts. And I think that mm. that is going to be really helpful for them. And so, um, but I think that you're, you're right. And so like you see language like this in the New Testament, uh, you, you pointed mm. to the book of Hebrews, um, which really does a great job of showing us um, how Christ as the high priest of the new covenant has fulfilled the old covenant. Um, but you even see in places like Ephesians 2 and 6, right, where it talks about that we have been lifted up into the heavenlies and seated with Christ, right? And so whenever the liturgy happens, it's more than just, rituals and rites, right? Mm. Like it's more than those things. They are participating in heavenly realities. And, and you talked about them participating in the life of Christ. And so, and that's true even of, of the sacraments, uh, right? Like the, the sacraments participate metaphysically in things greater than themselves. So uh, like baptism, you know, you see Paul kind of talk about this language of um, like it part, like he, he relates baptism almost to in Corinthians, first Corinthians to what happened in the Red Sea with Moses and Israel, right? Like that he says that they came through the Red Sea and that they were baptized in the cloud and that they, they came out, 
and he, he corresponds baptism. He's like, Hey, baptism is like this. Like, it's like you being an Israelite, being saved, right? God is saving you through, through the waters. Uh, and he's bringing you out the other side. Like, and then he talks about, uh, the Eucharist or the Lord's supper. And he, uh, it corresponds to the manna that comes down from heaven, right? Like this is participation in a story that spans generations, right? Like we are participating in this family story with the saints of old. And we don't typically view things that way. I don't think like I, uh, baptism. It's like, I'm just going down into the water and I'm coming back out. Like in the, the Lord's supper, I'm just eating bread and drinking wine or juice or, you know, whatever. Um, but it's more than that, right? Like far more than that. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a good point. Um, it is far more than that. And uh, I think you can, how I, I like to describe it now is um, through more influence and in, in the Reformed tradition and um, in my readings, I, I like to um, liken the service to uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The, the, what's really called the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, the unveiling of Christ to us. And um, you see that in, uh, for example, the road to Emmaus. I think, um, I think it was N.T. Wright that pointed this out when I was reading about it. But it's it's a great example of this particular um, participation in what really happens with God's people. It was the day of resurrection, and Jesus is, had veiled himself. Right, he, he these two disciples traveling on the road didn't know it was Jesus, and Jesus calls out to them. And these two disciples, and whenever it, uh, in the scriptures it says, whenever two or three are gathered in my name, um, I am with them. Right, so he comes alongside these two disciples. And uh, he asked them, you know, what, what's going on? He calls out to them. And the disciples explain, you know, where have you been? Uh, this is, there's been some crazy stuff going down in Jerusalem. And we're on our way to Emmaus. And Jesus rebukes them. And he says, didn't you know that this was what the Christ was supposed to do? So you have this call to confession um, given to these disciples. And then Jesus immediately opens up the, the law and the prophets and explains throughout the whole of scripture how the Messiah uh, in Jesus uh, fulfills all of the uh, Old Testament and the prophets. So you have this, this uh, preaching, if you will, um, to the disciples. And then at the end, when they get to where they're, they're going to, um, the disciples say, you know what, why don't you stay with us? We want you to stay with us. So they have this desire to be with Jesus. And then they sit down and they break bread together. It's like the most obvious uh, depiction of the Lord's Supper uh, after the resurrection. And then as they break bread and as they're sitting around the table, Jesus is unveiled to them. And he makes himself known to them finally at the breaking of bread. And that's um, when we view the, the, um, the liturgy in that particular lens. It's, it's Christ coming alongside us and taking us with him into the heavenly places to see him, to, uh, to see him in his fullness, um, then I think that that uh, sort of scientific, sterile, cold uh, feeling that we have about um, the rites and rituals of the service, I think they start to disappear over time when we start to view it in that particular way. This is something different. In the beginning of Revelation, 
John says, and I was caught up in the spirit and I was brought up into the heavenly places. And that's really what's happening on Sunday morning. And, and if we have that view, then all of that cold, sterile aspect of it will dissipate. Yeah, I 100% agree. I think you're right. And I've noticed that even in my own life. Um, you know, whenever I begin reading and studying these things, I realize I was like, wow, this is not the way that I view the world. <laughs> like I was immediately confronted with that. But but oh, you're right. Over time, for me personally, that's that's dissipated. And, and I've noticed that for many of our congregants, that's that's true as well. So, for example, I've, I see it almost on a weekly basis. Whenever we uh, do the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper together, um, I see people crying like almost every week. And it's because they realize um, that they are participating um, in the blood and body of Christ, that they are partaking of it. Um, now, we don't believe like Roman Catholics that, that you know, whenever I say the, right. the words of institution, that uh, they are transubstantiated into the physical body and blood of Christ there on the Lord's table. But we're, we've been called up into heaven right? Like, like you said, uh, metaphysically, we've been called up into heaven. We have ascended into heaven and we really are partaking of the body and the blood of Jesus. That's true, but it's not in the same way as say our Roman Catholic brothers or even our Lutheran brothers, or, you know, some of our, even our Anglican Anglo Catholic brothers would say, but we really are participating in the body and the blood of Christ. And I see people get that. And when they get that, that, that cold, sterile feeling, it goes away. Right. And it, it leads to things like tears and you you realize, at least in some manner, you know, obviously not fully, but that you are participating in a great mystery. Yeah. And um, and it's we also it, it highlights a, a problem in, in modern thought. Um, well, I guess postmodern now, like you said, um, that we view the spiritual as uh, as not real. Like and, and we may not say that, but we actually. We think it. We think that, oh, to be, um, and I, I've heard this multiple times regarding bat, baptism debates, right? Um, well, it's, you know, it's, it's a spiritual baptism that we're a part of. It's not physical water or anything like that. And it's, no, no, that's not how God created the world. That's not how he works in the world. And when we view spiritual as just another word for fake, um, then it obviously affects um, the worship of God's people being brought up in the spirit. Suddenly we, we think, Oh, well, that's just, that's in our minds. I ascend in my mind, but really it's, it's a spiritual reality. And that's true. It is. And it's even probably more true than what we see with our eyes. It reminds me of the, uh, the passage in the old Testament. I think it's with, uh, Elisha where he's got a servant with him and, uh, he's, he's, he looks, they look to the mountain and Elisha sees it, uh, his servant doesn't see it, and then he, uh, he's able to. And he looks and he sees, sees all of this unseen realities. Like He sees like mm. chariots. He sees like all of these heavenly realities begin to overlap with the physical reality that he sees. And so I suspect that it's a lot like that, that that's probably a good picture if, if people want to, to, to probably get a, an image of that in their head. But you're right. That, like I said, that was exactly my story, right? Like, spiritual, I didn't know it, but I had been catechized in post-modernity and secularism far more than I knew that I was. And even, that was true of me even when I was a Christian. Um, mm. And that regardless of whether I, I would have ever said it or not, I, I did think of the spiritual as like 
fake, even though I wouldn't have said that, you know what I mean? Like I would have always said, of course that's true. But what happens I suspect is that these categories get so ingrained in our minds and they affect our thinking in such subversive ways that it, it just, it undermines our profession and we're not aware of it. And I saw that in my own life, but yeah, thank God, like praise God that like, you know, thinking about these things for a few years and, and participating in the liturgy. That's the thing about the liturgy, man, is it not only is it these heavenly things that we're talking about, but it also forms you as well. Mm. You know, you, the more you do it and the more you're aware of it, the more these things begin to dissipate and and you begin to, I guess, view it through new eyes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You had to bring that in. Right. So, yeah. uh, If I could add to that though, um, to kind of go back to uh, the definition of liturgy, uh, people's service, um, that, yeah, the, the liturgy does shape you as well. I mean, that's, um, you know, we'll get on, I, I guess, to resources and things later, but um, but that, that's what was really defining for me was that it's not just about me doing things for God. I, I remember growing up in, um, and I grew up in the Baptist tradition, Presbyterian now, but I grew up in the Baptist tradition, and um, a Southern Baptist, and I was always taught, well, what we do on Sunday morning is we offer up ourselves to God, right? Uh, Romans 12, we're living sacrifices. Um, but I didn't really take into account what that verse means, that we are living sacrifices, right? So um, sacrifices don't, they don't walk up to the tent of meeting and just offer themselves to die. Um, it's they're called there, they're brought there, and then they are offered up to God. And so the the people's services is really a, a two-way uh, uh, name, I guess, for what we do, because yes, we offer up ourselves freely, that's true, but um, but God also acts on us. And that's why I think um, doing things according to the way that God prescribes it in the scriptures on Sunday morning is so important because that won't happen to us if we don't do it the way God told us to do. And cause he wants to take us and he wants to form us and he wants to shape us into new creations because when we participate in the life of Jesus, that's what happens. We, we die and then we're resurrected to something new. And if we don't believe that, um, I, I think, yeah, we miss, a, we miss a lot. Absolutely. So, let's let's move here so i've talked about kind of my own personal story here a little bit and this we'll get into some resources and stuff like that here in a minute um but so i've kind of talked about what kind of led to me looking at some of this stuff right i have a at a worship leader at our church he'll be listening to this and he'll think this is funny i hope he remembers all that but um so we've talked about kind of my story but what was it that led you lucas to recovering this view of things um yeah it was a uh, it was a pretty difficult road um, I, I was myself a worship leader at a, a local church here in town and love those people. And it was a great experience. Um, but when, when I became a worship leader and I, you know, full-time on staff, I, I, I really, uh, I, I realized as I was crafting the order of service every week that I didn't know what the heck I was doing. And, uh, and so I, I just, I didn't know where to turn and I figured older would be better. Right. So I'll just go back to the early church fathers and, uh, and then John Calvin and the reformation and, and all, all, 
I'll read all this stuff I can get my hands on. Um, and so that's what I did. And, and I read probably more during that time than I've, I've ever read in my life. And, um, and, and I realized, um, Hey, I, you know, we do some of these things here. Um, but I'd really like to be able to do all of these things. And so in, anyways, long story short, short, I, I ended up, um, um, saying farewell to those, those wonderful saints there and, and went on to uh, another church and, um, that sort of aligned with what I was thinking about regarding worship. Um, but I, I wanted, and I had a desire, um, to, to see, uh, Jesus in, in, I guess, a new way, um, because I, I didn't really know why. I didn't have answers why we did what we did, and, and mainly the answers that I had, because I was the guy responsible, was, well, it fits in our time slot, and, um, or it, it just, it flows better, right? The service feels better, and it flows better, and I realized that's just not a good litmus test for uh, determining how we're to approach the king of kings in the heavenly places. Yeah, um, pragmatism can, <laughs> lead to some, can lead to some funky places. Absolutely. And, and so I, and, and I started to notice some patterns in, in early church liturgies with Ambrose and Augustine, uh, Cyprian and, and those guys. And then I got a hold of some, some great resources on, on worship um, and, and the Reformation worship and what they did in response to the Roman Catholic tradition and their errors. Um, and so I, I just fell in love with the reformed view of, of worship because it, it allowed me to see, um, in the scriptures from, from new eyes, uh, what, you know, what worship is really about. And, um, and I had to have it. And that was probably the impatient young guy in me who, uh, who just had to have what, you know, the Bible prescribed in not being patient where I was. Um, but that's kind of how I ended up there. It was a lot of knee-jerk reactions, to be honest. But, um, but I do think that uh, I had at least the right heart behind it. It's good. It's good. It's good, too, that you're, be able, you're able to look back, you know, at your story and to be like, you know what, maybe I should have been a little bit more patient here. But I, I think that ultimately our stories are very similar, right? Like we, we're confronted, uh, with, with something. And whenever we're confronted with something, it's sent us on a journey. And mm. in that journey, we've both like, wow, there is far more to this thing than I ever thought that there was. And, you know, and it, it, it led to us like, I've got to have more, right? Like this, and, and it, it ultimately, it, it leads to an entire change of everything. Like you, you view things differently and, uh, you know, and as we've said in this episode, not only does it change the way that we view uh, our local churches and what happens there, but it, it changes the way even that we view life and the world. It's it's, mm. it's uh, an all-encompassing thing. And we didn't get into this, but it even changes the way that you view time, right? If you follow a liturgical calendar and, and you observe the seasons of the liturgical year, like right now we're in Pentecost, right? And, um, you know, it restructuring everything around Christ, uh, the way we view time and the, the way our liturgies, I think that ultimately that is the way uh, to sanctification and ultimately to glorification in, in our lives. And I think that not only is it helpful practically, 
but it's also helpful for our holiness right? <laughs> because I mean, this is uh you know, Christ is the, the way that we are made holy. And so when we structure everything around him uh, and according to him and we participate in him, that's where true holiness and virtue, I believe is found as well. And so, um, so lastly, if someone wanted to begin uh, reimagining, remythologizing, uh, recovering the liturgy and all of these things that we've talked about today, where would you recommend that they start? Resources, maybe conversations that should be had, et cetera? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and I was, I was going to just say Leviticus and Hebrews, but I, I think I'll pass on that one. Um, you should read those. But, uh, but one thing I, uh, I, I read this, it, this is, I think it would be great for laymen. Um, one, I read this every year, I think. It's uh, a blog post, and it's by Peter Lightheart. Um, and it's called Liturgy, a Parable. Um, so if you just search Liturgy, a Parable, a Parable on, uh, on Google, that'll pop up. But basically what he does is he, he makes a parable of, of a man brought into worship, and all of a sudden the pastor's eyes turn red, and the, the roof of the church opens up, and the floor disappears, and you know this huge cosmic thing happens around him. And at the end, he gets tapped on the shoulder. Hey, it's time to leave. What's wrong with you? Um, and it's him discovering what's really happening um, in the worship. And I, I just think it's a wonderful picture to just kind of whet your appetite for learning more about it. Um, so again, that's a liturgy, a, a parable by Peter Lightheart. But um, if you wanted to dig deeper, there's a, a small book by Douglas Wilson um, called Primer on Worship and Reformation. Um, which helps you to kind of walk through that service uh, and in relatively short books, probably about 100 pages, something like that. Um, and then if you wanted to go even deeper than that, um, and you don't mind having to dig through some, uh, some Eastern mystery and uh, tradition, uh, there's a, a book by Alexander Schmemann called uh, For the Life of the World. And that really helps you to view um, that sort of unveiling aspect of Jesus uh, in the service, that cosmic aspect. Um, and then if you wanted to go even deeper, uh, there's a book by Jeffrey Myers called The Word Service, and it's a mammoth. It's about 400 pages or so. Um, but that book I read about two or three times during that, that transition period. It really shaped me and how I understood worship in the church. But um, but yeah, again, those are some small or big resources if you'd like to take a look. Yeah, and I'll throw a couple in there too that's been helpful for me. Um, from the historical perspective, if you're wanting to dive into what the reformers did, like what Luke and I talked about during this episode, uh, you can pick up, it's a big fat book. Uh, it's called Reformation Worship Liturgies from the Past for the Present. And it's got, uh, let me see here in the table of contents real quick, it's got everybody from um let's see here it's got from it's got luther's uh german mass and the form of the mass that he had there in germany it's got martin bootser it's got john calvin thomas cramner uh john knox um it's got uh, heinrich bollinger it's got all kinds of uh, reformed figures and their liturgies in here. And mm. it's a really helpful book. Um, you don't have to read it from front to back. You can just, uh, you know, go to the chapter that you want to look at and uh, go from there. Um, 
another book that I would recommend if you're to kind of broaden the scope here a little bit. Um, uh, if you're wanting to kind of recover what Luke and I talked about, uh, a symbolic view of the world, uh, right? Like this, uh, viewing the world symbolically and uh, getting this kind of cosmology for the world, right? Like what we talked about earlier, uh, James B. Jordan's Through New Eyes. Um, I started there uh, a couple of years ago, probably. And I'm still chewing on much of what I've learned there today. Um, I, I, I usually go back yearly. So I have so far yearly and reread it. And I've, I always see something that I've missed before. There's just so much there. Um, so that's good. Um, I'll tell you another book that, that kind of helped me, um, whenever I started thinking about this stuff and I've moved past it since then, but it was a book, a very small book by a reformed Baptist guy named Richard Barcelos. And it's called the Lord's supper is a means of grace. But basically in that book, he kind of lays out Calvin's view of what happens at the Eucharist, um, that it's more than just, he, you know, he calls it a means of grace and, you know, that kind of stuff. But that was kind of the thing that opened the door for me. And whenever it came to the sacraments, like, oh, wow, there's something different. Like there's something happening here, right? Like it's more than just, so that, that was uh, an eye opening book for me. And so, but yeah, I would, we would commend all of these, these books to you. And uh, also, um, you know, if, if you're in a church and Luke, if you're in a church and say you're in one of the type of churches that we talked about at the beginning, kind of like, you know, like what our church was beginning, right? Like uh, we didn't have a, a high view of these things. Um, you know, we, we viewed the the gathering more as an individual thing to kind of, as, as a worship experience to gear us up for the coming week. Um, and you're listening to this podcast and you're like, wow, I, I need that in my life. Where, where would you recommend that they start? Like a conversation maybe with their pastor, um, you know, maybe some of that kind of stuff. I think that's what I would recommend because that was what ultimately changed my view of it. Someone brought this to my attention. It's like, hey, we should think about this some more. What would you recommend? Yeah, I think that's a great, um, a great point because um, just from my own experience, um, I, I, in the mistakes that I had made, I would definitely uh, talk to your pastor about these things. Ask him, you know, just simple questions. Why do we do this? Um, what, where in the scriptures uh, does it say we should do this? And, and receive what he says humbly and sincerely and graciously. Um, and, I, yeah, I would start there by talking to, um, to the leadership of your church. And then if they have, you know, additional thoughts or they want your thoughts, then definitely offer them. Um, offer them material, things like that. But, um, but yeah, I think if you want this in your church, um, you have to start from a place of humility. I mean, uh, everybody, um, everybody starts somewhere. Um, and you got to be able to be patient with, um, with your brothers and sisters around you and not demand things right away. Um, so yeah, I would start there. Just talk with your elders, uh, your pastors and, and um, ask why they do what they do and, and if they've ever considered these other, um, other views. Yeah, I think that that's really, really good um, because I suspect that there will be people who listen to this and they'll say, wow, I, I need to think about this more. And, 
being people who've kind of come from similar places, I think that our experiences here and the same, the things that we've said, I think that'll be helpful for them. Also, I wanted to throw in before we, uh, we end this conversation today, I want to throw in a couple more resources that I just now thought of. I've been looking at my shelves here <laughs> and I'm like, man, I know that there's more here. Um, so we've kind of, we've talked about the local church level. Uh, we've talked about the cosmic level, uh, viewing the world symbolically with the books that we recommend. If you're wanting a personal level, um, like wanting to view how uh, man is a liturgical creature, I would recommend James K. A. Smith's books. He's got one. Uh, he's got a book called You Are What You Love, and he talks about the liturgies, uh, personal liturgies that way. Um, he's also got a three-part series. It's called uh, Desiring the Kingdom, Imagining the Kingdom, and I can't remember the last one. It's a newer one. I don't, I don't have that one yet. But um, in that, it's called The Cultural Liturgies. Uh, series and he kind of breaks down the liturgies in our culture and does some uh, examination of them and and some of that kind of really helpful stuff really helpful for me um, I would commend those to you and also Luke I don't know if you've done any talks or anything that maybe touches on some more of this stuff but I did a talk last year at an Acts 29 uh, conference here in West Virginia on uh, implementing liturgy in the local church and I kind of did a scaled back version of what we've talked about today, how liturgy is written into creation. It's written into, uh, to man. And it's, it's also inevitably in our local churches and therefore we need to think about it. I'll link that in the show notes. Um, if you have anything else, if you've done anything, we can link that in there as well. If you'd like that. Um, do you have anything? Uh, well, actually it's funny you should ask that. Our Trinity reformed church, um, here in Martinsburg actually came up with a, uh, why we worship the way we worship booklet. Um, and I could send you a copy of that. Um, but it, it's, it's really short. It's just a pamphlet style um, thing. And it walks through every aspect of the, uh, of the liturgy and then provides scriptural uh, backing to those shows you in the Bible, why we do what we do. It's a really comprehensive, small little booklet I could send your way. Yeah. I think that that would be really helpful. Well, guys, I hope that listening in today that you see that, um, this is a conversation that needs to be had. Like we need to, uh, I, I think that maybe we don't quite, uh, appreciate how, uh, how we've been affected by the world that we live in. And I hope that you see that now after this conversation. And I hope that you see that there is far more happening and there's far more at work, uh, in the world and in life and in our faith than what we would expect. And so, um, I hope you also see in this conversation that that reformed Protestantism has something to offer, right? You don't have to go somewhere else to find it, right? Like you don't have to go to, to you know, cross the Tiber uh, to the Catholic Church to get it. Um, I think that they, they have it, but I think that they've got problems, obviously. But you don't also don't have to go to the to the East, uh, to the Orthodox Church to find it. You can get it right here in Protestant, Protestantism. And uh, so I hope that this has been helpful for you guys. Uh, if you have any questions or anything like that, that you would like addressed in a, a further episode, you can email me at the kingdom and the power at gmail.com. Also make sure to subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform that you're listening on, be it Apple, Apple podcasts, Spotify, Google podcasts. We're on some others too. Some that I don't, I don't even know what they are. <laughs> so we're on all of the, the platforms out there. So uh, make sure to subscribe, leave us an honest five-star review and uh, make sure to listen in next week.
really appreciate you guys listening in today. Luke, thanks for joining me once again. And we'll see you guys next time. Thanks, Josh. God be with you. And also with you. Later, guys.